editor of Fortune magazine led by Varne Harnish, had put up an article, you know, compiling the 10 greatest business decisions ever taken. And Tata Steel's decision to downsize was one of the 10. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Startup Operator Podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'm going to be talking to Hari TN, who's head of HR at Big Basket. Hi, sir. Welcome to the Startup Operator Podcast. Hi, Roshan. First of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. Such a pleasure. Pleasure to have you as well. Uh, so, you've had a three-decade career, uh, starting with uh, Tata Steel and now uh, heading HR and people function at uh, Big Basket. Uh, if you were to describe this journey, you know, just take us through, uh, you know, what this three decades has been like for you. Right. So maybe, uh, Roshan, what I will do is I'll just step back a little bit and take you through my childhood as well and take you through my entire education and uh, to where I am. So I grew up in a small town in Orissa and uh, I'm a quintessential small town boy. I continue to be a quintessential small town boy. And uh, I, you know, in my school days, um, I was interested in science. I was interested in literature, history. And the reason why I'm telling you, I'll, I'll come back to why this is important later on. Sure. And, you know, to make uh, a career, to make a living, you need to pick one area, especially if you want to make a living through education. So I picked science because science was what fascinated me. Physics was my favorite topic. Even to this day, when I feel a little depressed, a little low in life, I pick up Feynman's lectures in physics along with, you know, Oscar Wilde's The Happy Prince. And I think uh, that calms me down. Right. So I studied uh, engineering at IIT Madras. I think engineering came closest to science. And I realized that you can't make a living through science in India. And hence, you need to do something professional. And engineering came the closest. So I studied at IIT Madras Mechanical Engineering. It was, uh, you know, a dream come true for me. I wanted to pursue mechanical engineering and I wanted to study mechanical engineering at IITM because it was considered the best in the country at that point of time. So for me, it was a dream come true. I also maybe at some point thought of, uh, you know, doing an MS in engineering from some of the best institutes like Stanford or uh, MIT. But I didn't get admission into those universities because I was in the middle of my class. I was not the topper. And I wasn't keen to do... Uh, you know, an MS from the average colleges in the US. So I decided to do an MBA. And the reason for my doing an MBA was largely to, you know, get a more holistic understanding of how, you know, companies worked and not necessarily to get a foothold outside of engineering. So even after doing an MBA, I picked up an engineering job, a hardcore steel company. And even in the steel company, you know, I preferred not to work in areas like marketing and international trade for which we were picked. And those days, you know, international travel was a luxury and uh, international trade function entailed a lot of travel. And I was, you know, keen to do engineering rather than, you know, enjoy the luxuries of foreign travel. So I wore the hard hat, worked in the blast furnaces, steel melting shops, coke ovens, helped putting up many of these new plants and learned uh, the engineering the hard way. So for instance, uh, in engineering, when you study, you see a valve as just you know, two small triangles back to back represented as a schematic. But when you go to a steel plant and see a valve weighing 5,000 kilos or five tons being erected by a crane 30 meters from the ground on a pipeline, that is fascinating. So heavy engineering fascinated me like crazy. Right. And uh, you know, at some point of time in a large company like Tata Steel, if you're bright, then you tend to be rotated into different functions, sometimes even unrelated functions. 
and i was you know offered an opportunity to work in uh, the human capital side and the reason was in 1991 the country liberalized was in the verge of bankruptcy and opened up the economy customs duties were reduced and uh, in some ways you know foreign companies were allowed to sell more freely in india right. and cis countries began dumping steel at prices below our cost and we had to do something very dramatic 70000 employees in tata steel were producing 3 and 1/2 million tons 700 employees in a south korean plant or an american plant like newcore were producing 3 and 1/2 million tons so we had to do something very different and we had to right size the company we had to you know get out of this concept of lifelong employment at tata steel if you worked for 25 years your children could get employment as well so we had to rethink many of these policies we had to you know think of whether seniority is you know such an important thing we had to get uh, you know younger people who were competent into key positions and leadership roles mm-hmm. so we got mckinsey to help us with this project and i was part of the core team from tata steel that worked with mckinsey this was essentially a human capital project i want to pick up on something that you said because i, I think it's pretty interesting and also uh, right now topical as well many founders are being forced to make their choice at this point of time right uh, uh, as you termed it right size the business uh because i mean uh, as yeah. a founder you have to put your business and uh, growth and profitability at the top of everything uh you know making that decision cannot be easy obviously right uh, but what are two or three things that uh, you did that time uh, that you know you would advise to founders at this point as well yeah so i don't know whether there can be a parallel exactly but i'll just tell you what happened at tata steel in fact uh, the fortune magazine you know led uh, editor of fortune magazine led by verne harnish had put up an article you know compiling the 10 greatest business decisions ever taken mm-hmm. and tata steel's decision to downsize was one of the 10 wow it was not the decision to downsize but the way it was structured and executed that got it into the same category as bringing back uh, steve jobs to apple the second time around and i think um, what happened was that you see i think this is a situation where survival is at stake right. and when survival is at stake you need to protect the majority of the employees and to protect the majority you need to let a few people go and i think that was the call that we took you know 70000 to 40000 is what we had to cut down wow. and the tatas had a culture you know of giving lifelong employment of being seen as a caring organization employee welfare was always very important at every forum these beliefs and these values were reinforced so going back on these was not very easy for the company so letting go of employees was being done for the first time in the 100 year old history of the company so you can imagine how difficult it must have been right but the way it was done was that uh, the company took a very holistic view of the labor costs or people costs and the way it happened was that there is you know an element of salaries involved there is an element of retirees that the company is contributing to there is a you know housing that the company is providing other benefits like free hospital services that the company healthcare that the company is providing so what the company decided was that if it was laying you off whatever was your salary your salary would be protected till you reach the age of 60 so for example if you were 45 years old and if you are earning 50000 rupees per month you would continue to get 50000 rupees per month till the age of 60 so for the next 15 years this was protected so but it still helped the company cut down cost significantly because this 50000 was static it did not go up year on year kind of like a there were no increases there was no increments 
right. the company did not have to contribute to your retirement and superannuation benefits like provident funds, superannuation funds. The company did not have to provide you housing, did not have to provide you free medical care. So there were several other costs, you know, that came with employment that it could get rid of. So, but it was a very, very generous package. No company in the world ever does this kind of a thing. But given the culture of the Tatas, this was the approach that we took. I don't know whether we can take the same approach in the current modern economy or companies that are part of the modern economy. I think that will just kill them. So I think that is not uh, therefore applicable. But having said that, survival is important even in the current situation for startups which are seeing revenue coming off rapidly. They yeah. need to survive. That's the most important thing. So therefore, they need to figure out what is the right size that they need to maintain. And people cost is an important component, of course. There are other costs that they need to look at, but people cost is a very significant cost, especially if you're in the services business. Right. And therefore, the startup needs to figure out you know, who are the highly paid employees whose value addition in the short run is questionable at this point of time. So that category, I think you need to take a hard look at. And then, of course, after that, you can also take a look at whether you need to take salary cuts across the board, whether you need to tax salary cuts by slab where people above a certain level are right. taking bigger pay cuts. Founders are taking, taking a 75 to 100% pay cuts. Right. So those are things that the startup should evaluate and do it, I think, dispassionately. But right. do it with a lot of humanity, humanitarian value. Do it in a very humane way. So I think that is very critical. I think some companies have taken these calls and done it in a very humane way. They've right. given them stock options which had vested, they've allowed them to exercise. Yeah. Although, or given them, you know, time for five years to exercise. That's a very generous thing to do. Like said that if you're, yeah, exactly. And if they said yeah. that, if you know, if you have one month severance pay in the contract, we'll give you three months severance pay. Go beyond the contract right. and help out with insurance, especially in countries outside India. Insurance is extremely critical. Even in India, it's becoming critical. So provide them with family ins health insurance for the next 12 months. So I think there are humane ways to do it. Right. I also want to pick up on one other aspect, which was the fact that you were a hands-on engineer, right? Uh, yeah. And I worked for a very brief time in the refinery as well. So I quite relate to, you know, mm -hmm. seeing all those large machines, you know, popping yeah. out of my, from my textbook uh, to, yes. you know, real life. Uh, yeah. In fact, I mean, we were on top of an oil drum and it was such right. an intimidating experience for me as well. Right. Uh, right, right. Because that thing is wobbly as well, right? So it's yes, not a yes. hard uh, exterior. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, how much of being hands-on uh, as an engineer uh, helped you, you know, transition to HR? Because so there are two ways of looking at it, right? Engineers are very dispassionate. Uh, you know, everything is an equation with some variables. You shift your uh, le left hand side to get the right hand side you need. And, you know, HR is a lot about empathy and care and, you know, it's a people function, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so how much of, uh, you know, how much of that did you have to bridge as such? Uh, good question. I think a lot of people have asked me this question. I don't necessarily agree that, you know, engineering is all about, uh, you know, some equations and a few variables and a few numbers. I think when you're studying engineering, it boils down to a few equations and to a few numbers but once you start working in a company with people then you cannot take the people side away when you're working with people you are a people manager first and you are getting you know engineering work done but mm. uh, engineering happens to be the context but at the end of it it's people who are getting work done you need to motivate people you need to get the best out of people you need to have a strong goal orientation you need to have a strong performance orientation and therefore, you're managing people every day. Engineering is just the context. 
so you're not solving equations you know always you have to get the engineers to stick to timelines project management is important you know people have to work in a very collaborative way the construction have folks have to work in a very collaborative way with those who are procuring stuff with those who are you know designing stuff all those people have to work in a very collaborative way and as a leader you need to bring them together if you don't understand people right then you cannot manage any organization so every organization yeah. is about people the context can be different in a university yeah. it's about education in a steel company it's about engineering and steel in a you know company like big basket it's the context is technology and you know online commerce and retail so the context can vary from company to company industry to industry but it's always people people is are central hmm interesting interesting and uh, uh i mean the next shift that uh, you made in your career is yeah. like from moving on from uh, you know an administrative role at tata into a mid-sized uh, uh, it firm and i think you worked at a couple of uh, these it firms as well mm-hmm. so what was the transition like i mean you know usually core engineers have a sort of a uh, what do you say i won't say prejudiced view but they have a sort mm-hmm. of a view against like you no know, it and software work right so mm-hmm. what was that uh, transition like for you so i don't have uh, many prejudices i would say to start with as i told you i was interested in multiple things i while i was a very good engineer i also had a deep appreciation of literature and history and right. both of these have stood me in good stead i'll come to your very specific question in a moment in a moment sure so both of these interests have also stood me in good stead for example interest in literature led to my being able to communicate well Mm. it's important to communicate well both in written form you have emails every day that you're writing how crisply you write how effectively you communicate both spoken and email is very important mm. so your ability to you know interest in literature played out here mm. and my interest in literature is now playing out in the form of being an author i am able to write books as fast as people are able to write blogs and that's the, the reason why i am able to do that is because i understand things well and i can translate that into easy to understand language and right. my interest in history is playing out because i am able to use historical context as examples to explain corporate problems and that's far more interesting i can bring in you know the battle for constantinople 1453 when you know the ottoman turks defeated the byzantine empire i can bring aurangzeb akbar ahilya bai holkar and explain corporate context so i think it makes it easier for people to relate to and understand now coming to your specific question about you know transitioning i mean a hardcore engineer transitioning to an bpo which was daksh at that point of time and later on vertuza was an it services corporate company i think the contexts were different and i have been always a good learner all my life i have been extremely curious that's my biggest strength which is i'm always asking a lot of questions i'm always reflecting about things i don't know about things i don't completely understand so even when i came to daksh or when i moved to uh, you know vertuza which was an it company i asked a lot of questions and got to know about the business context and what what was important in those contexts and i was not prejudiced at all because i think everything is great even it services uh, or it product companies they are doing a great job you know they are solving real problems it, those problems may not look like 510 valves valves or you know all an or an oil rig or as macho as an oil rig but uh, they are solving the very very important problems and i think you need to recognize that and i think i was always open to recognizing that right one of the things that you mentioned right is the fact that you know uh, you are very curious and you always have this learner's mindset 
Yeah. Uh, and you've done it over three decades, which is, uh, you know, fantastic. I mean, uh, even to do it over a, a shorter period of time is like, you know, such a challenge uh, for us to constantly reinvent ourselves every year, every yeah. five years or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. How, what is your sort of antidote to, I won't say antidote, what is your prescription to, you know, staying this intellectually curious person and kind of relearning every once in a while? To suit the yeah, so I can't answer that question. I think part of it is uh, a little inborn in the sense that curiosity is also inborn. Right. Uh, not everyone is necessarily very curious. So part of that is inborn and part of that is, I think, can be cultivated. So mm-hmm. if you recognize that curiosity is important, if you recognize that, uh, you know, without learning, you cannot survive, mm-hmm. then I think a large number of people begin to learn. So people do things only when they're pushed to the brink. That's at least a majority of the people do something when they're pushed to the brink. Right. And that's the reason, you know, why a lot of edtech companies that are peddling knowledge don't necessarily do well. But edtech companies which are giving you certifications or resulting in you getting certifications, which will result in a pay hike for you or a promotion on the job. Those kind of companies do well because... There is, you know, at the end of doing that, there is a carrot for you, a tangible reward. Mm. But if there's no tangible reward or no tangible penalty of not doing something, people usually don't do it. So I think I have tried to do this irrespective of whether there was a penalty or a reward. And I think I have found it very rewarding, both in a very intangible way, as well as in a very tangible way. Both ways I have found my curiosity for learning paying off. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, learning without expectations is uh, sort yeah. of, uh, I mean, cultivating that is is perhaps like, you know, a super skill, right? Uh, to not really have to expect anything at the end of it and then still learn for learning's sake. So the next transition you made, uh, the next chapter yeah. of your life was uh, to startups, right? Uh, you came in from, you know, well-established companies and then mid-sized yeah. and now startups uh, and you're thrown into the deep end. Uh, at Taxi for sure as Chief People Officer. What was that experience like, you know, when seeing the whole zero to one journey at uh, Taxi for sure and, you know, other startups afterwards? So, by the way, I think Tata Steel was the only mature company I've worked for, large company. The next one was Daksh was also a startup, actually. Okay. I don't, so since you are so young, I don't think you may know that. But Daksh was one of the startups in the 21st century. This company was started in 2000. It right. was India's coolest BPO along with Spectromine. Spectromine okay. was acquired by uh, uh, Wipro and Daksh was acquired by IBM, went on to become Daksh, IBM Daksh. And then my next company was another startup called Virtuza, which was a private company, US-based, headquartered in Boston. I was uh, you know, part of the global people uh, head based out of uh, India. And uh, we listed that company on NASDAQ. So that was also a successful exit. Fantastic. So two successful exits. And then Ambar Research. Ambar Research was also an investment research outsourcing startup. Okay. And uh, this company was acquired by Moody's. So Taxi for Sure was my fourth startup, actually. Okay. And Big Basket okay. is my fifth. So you seem to think that Taxi for Sure is the first, but it is my fourth startup. Right. So, and Taxi for Sure was not a zero to one journey at all. Hmm. I was not in that phase. So I joined when the product market fit had already been established, the zero to one. There was no question that the zero to one has be, had been successfully made beyond any iota of doubt. And okay. we were in the scaling mode. Mm-hmm. So when I came on board, we were in about three or four cities. And in t- less than 13 months, we had scaled to 45 cities across the country. 
So we were in an explosive scaling mode. I came. I I am not the person who will join a startup in the zero to one pace. That's uh, not me. I don't think I will. I'm going to be very effective in that kind of a situation. That's not right. my, you know, sweet spot as well. Right. Okay. Let's talk about the explosive phase of growth. Right. So yeah, yeah. This is typically, as you mentioned, you know, there is product market fit, and you know your yes. Let's say, I mean, you have to grow from let's say hundred people to you know thousand people or whatever. Uh, yeah. A lot of the processes that have worked before uh, seem to break, right? A lot of the communication is uh, is not as seamless because you know yeah. by nature of not everyone not being in the same room, right? Yes. Uh, so a lot of the communication is distributed as such, uh, and you know how do you ensure? you know your sweet spot which is the whole you know explosive growth phase right so mm. how do you ensure that you know communication translates effectively people seem to understand you know what they have to do uh, and things get done so this is a very difficult question to answer in a podcast like this and i have written a book on this which is going to be published by penguin in august it's all done and dusted they just have to print it out right. and the title of the book is uh, from pony to unicorn scaling a startup sustainably so this book talks about the 1 to 10 journey of a startup after the product market fit is established right. all kinds of impediments in the way of a startup being able to scale seamlessly this book covers and we've touched upon we've created in this book a framework for being able to scale as well what is the best way to become a large company a unicorn and therefore we said pony to unicorn how do you get to be a sustainable unicorn we've identified certain set of factors and we've said that you know what uh, there are things like you know the total addressable market must be big you know that that's an important component there must be a market trend that you're participating in for example taxi aggregation was a trend you're participating in a mega trend so it's a mega trend you need to be part of you need to be part of a market you know huge market opportunity then there's a component of you know uh, founder ambition which goes into building large companies foundation is very critical making strategic choices the right strategic choices is important at each stage of the journey and making the right pivots at the inflection points strategic execution is very critical and uh, you know the human capital side is also extremely critical and human capital is an ex- very complex uh, you know topic it is not something that i can say you do this and you fixed it can't be so for example yeah absolutely so for example if a team is not performing well the normal tendency is to you know say that strengthen the team provide them more team members but at some point of time you need to also figure out whether the team is being led by the right kind of leader and maybe the you know opportunity is not to hire below the leader but to hire above that leader and bring somebody on top of this person mm-hmm. in some situations for example when you bring in large number of people laterally how do you assimilate the laterals in a very interesting way you know without creating clashes with the internal rock stars who've taken this company from 0 to 1 how do you get the two of them to work in a very collaborative way how do you build the right kind of culture should culture be documented should it be explicit should it be implicit how do you do this so there are several components of you know scale so i talked of founder ambition is very critical so for example if you take uh, ola right it is playing against a gorilla in the space which is uh, uber big basket is playing against a gorilla in the space which is amazon but founder ambition and clear thinking has helped both these companies whether it is big basket or ola take on the gorillas very successfully and grow so founder ambition is very critical 
then do, making the right strategic choices is also critical because at the right point if you make a wrong strategic choice it can set you back you in fact your journey is going to you know go back and you will topple so big basket made those right strategic choices we, like for example we said we are a retail company we are not a tech company and that made us do many things very differently fascinating and we said for example we will therefore go in with an inventory led model we are not going to go with a marketplace marketplace does not work for grocery that was a terrific strategic choice which yeah. you know went on to give us huge benefits a few strategic choices if you get them right can right. help you scale so i think scale is an extremely complex topic it is multi dimensional it has got several layers so in i've talked about this book sanjeev agarwal who is the founder of fundamentum and daksh as well he and i have co-authored this book and we've talked at length on this entire topic of the 1 to 10 journey and the title is pony yeah. to unicorn yeah no i mean uh, so couple of things you mentioned there as well yeah. that uh, I, you know i mean that's fascinating uh, the fact that big basket thought of himself itself as an operations company and powered by technology right not yeah, as yeah, a right. aggregator or an e-commerce marketing yeah. so on um, and we see that in the you know i was just downstairs getting my uh, big mm-hmm. basket delivery right uh, mm-hmm. just about half an hour back uh and mm-hmm. you see that in the way the operations work i mean like clockwork right seamlessly even under these kind yeah, of yeah. Uh, correct these kind of conditions uh but i also want to talk about one thing you you know mentioned in passing which is you know your mid level people your mid level managers have to make that shift right they have to graduate yeah. functional heads or leaders and correct so uh what are some things that leaders can do like as founders or you know leadership team uh to better you know uh, enable these people to make that transition because unless they grow yeah. the, the company doesn't grow right correct correct that's a good question so for uh, that's uh, you know leaders have to play an important role mm-hmm. to scale those under them and you cannot send your people to a classroom based training because a startup is an extremely fast paced environment people are very busy so you cannot you know take them to a classroom so therefore you have to create learning mechanisms which are integrated with work learning mechanisms which separate people from work will certainly fail So how do you create and integrate learning mechanisms into the work? So let me give you some examples. So let's assume that you as a company the management team is meeting every month. You call it, you call it a monthly management review where every function is reviewed. Now in that review you can make it so insightful that the participants who come and make their presentations on what they did have happened in the last month you can ask very interesting questions you can put them on the mat you can ask them very difficult questions and after some time they will know how to prepare for these meetings how to think in the right way how to solve problems in the right way because you have converted the review meeting into a terrific learning forum so right. you have to create these learning forums every day very interesting so for example if there is somebody in my team who does not know how to deal with conflict hmm. there is no point sending this person into a classroom training on conflict management instead i should take this person along with me when i am going to deal with a conflict situation mm. and let this person just simply sit and observe me dealing with the conflict mm. and take this person to three such meetings and this person would have learned the essentials of managing conflict and can do it better so there are many ways in which you can develop people on the job regularly giving feedback to them on what is not working what is it that they should do better mm. and showing them how to do it in a better way that is terrific coaching on the job so i think you know there are several tools that you know managers can practically deploy in the working environment to help people scale 
So uh, classroom training, to my mind, it will never work. I believe in the 70-20-10 model, which right. is 70% of the learning happens through, you know, being thrown into the deep end on the job. 20% of the learning happens because of very powerful and insightful conversations that you have with people in the company. And mostly that people is just one individual who happens to be a manager. So have those very insightful conversations. Every conversation should result in learning and aha moments. 10% is through classroom. Certain things are best you know, imparted to classroom. So for example, techniques in digital marketing are very well imparted through a classroom for teaching some frameworks are well imparted to a classroom. And when I say classroom, I don't necessarily mean a physical classroom, can be an e-learning program as well. Mm. So make use of the 70-20-10 model and integrate learning into work and make the best of it every day. Right. No, that's a fantastic point. I mean, uh, so often I think the, the point of reviews is missed when you kind of look at it as a fact-finding mission rather than yeah. an opportunity to learn. Yes, right? yes. Uh, and also demonstrate, you know, other ways of thinking about the same problem. Right. Yes. Uh, so, which brings me to one facet of uh, uh, like people, which is being a player coach, right? Yeah. Uh, being an individual contributor and at the same time raising the collective yes. game of the team, right? Yes. Uh, and I'm sure that you would have seen some fantastic examples of uh, this in your career as well. What are some three or four characteristics that you you know that people can build uh, to become fantastic player coaches? People who are hands-on, but as well, you know, I mean, can take a step back and raise everyone's game. Yeah. So, I think uh, player coach is in some ways a career transition. At some point, very early on, you are just a player. Mm. At some point of time, you learn to be a player coach. And after some time, you transition to just being a coach. Right. So, I think someone like me at this stage, I'm a clearly a coach. I'm not a player coach. I have gone through the player coach phase very early in my life as well. So I think uh, the role of a player coach is in being able to help other people be as good as you are. Mm. It is by teaching them some of the things that you are good at. So it is like being a master trainer or a master craftsman who is you know, teaching other craftsmen and other trainers on how to be good craftsmen and how to be good trainers. Because they still continue to be good craftsmen and good trainers. They are demonstrating how to do it. And they have a few tricks up their sleeve. They've learned along the way. They've learned what helps them perform better. They figured those things out. And it is imparting knowledge on those things. Is when you do that, you are playing the role of a coach. So a player coach is, you know, I would say akin to a master trainer or a master craftsman who's also doing some work as well as teaching the relatively new entrants, new craftsmen, their craft. So I think that would be it. So you have to not everybody can be a good coach. For example, you are aware, right, that not uh, the best tennis player or the best cricket yeah. player can be the best coach. So yeah. being a coach requires slightly different set of skills other than playing well. Sometimes you see that people who have had an average career in tennis or cricket yeah. are absolutely amazing coaches when it comes to you know the game. And they're coaching people who are playing much better than they have ever played in their life. Because um, players don't necessarily need to be taught exactly the skills they need, need the right kind of encouragement you know they need various other the, how to strengthen increase the mental strength for example all of those things are important uh, as well so i think uh, a coach's right. capability coach is very good at also articulating uh, you know why uh, how to build a certain skill so for example sometimes you can have a very good player who will not be able to describe why he or she is playing well and, you know, they won't even be able to do that. So, 
coach is very good at being able to think on what are the key components of the game which is making a person good so is able to articulate and teach so that is very critical that's a critical skill to be a coach really study the science of the work required as yeah yeah and yes yes be able to abstract the necessary yes correct that's correct and then inform the person yeah yeah um, so one of the things that we notice with startups especially you know yeah. high growth uh, you know rapid momentum startups strategy seems to be like a four letter word right lot of the times uh, because they're they're just in this execution mode of like you know going at breakneck speed um, mm-hmm. uh, you know move fast uh, uh, move fast break things or fail fast or whatever you yeah, yeah. of those credos right uh, but people is something that uh, i mean that's something that requires you know deliberate choices and careful thought right so if a founder is setting out to build a people function like consciously right because i mm-hmm. believe that the founder is first an hr right he's the he's the first hr for the company right yeah um, so how would you how would you say he or she has to go about this i mean what are three or four things that uh, the person has to do to ensure that you know they they build out this people function in a deliberate manner right so i think um... very soon you know most founders even if they have not had a people you know are bringing or have not played roles which needed a strong people orientation very quickly learn how important the people function is i think you, you can see even very hardcore tech entrepreneurs very quickly figuring out that the people function is important yeah i think uh, in a startup um, culture equals founders and therefore i think the most important uh, you know thing that a founder can do is set the culture and i think uh, one can do it in a very intuitive way but one can also figure out a structure and a method to this madness if you can find out a structure and a method then i think you can implement and execute much better so therefore i would say you know at a very early stage especially if the founder is young and founder has not had the experience of working in large teams before it is helpful to get some kind of a coach or a mentor for the people side who can then advise the founder on how to go about doing all the right kind of things because there are several situations so several founders even now you know who are outside my company call me up from time to time when they are confronted with this particular situation what do they need to do and they could be portfolio companies of uh, fundamentum the vc firm that i'm associated with or several other vc uh, uh, startups that i founders that i keep coaching mm. so for example one of the founders recently called me up regarding this crisis and said these are some of the decisions that we are thinking of taking what do you think so i played the role of a sounding board so i think it's important for a founder to have a good sounding board to you know check out a few things and good founders are able to learn their lessons very quickly so they might for example build the right culture but it might be done after breaking a few things and after making a few mistakes but they can do it right if they speak to the coach at the right time so i think building uh, uh, any function thoughtfully especially if you don't have experience can be done by having a few sounding boards outside of your organization that's critical to you know growing without the wheels coming off or without breaking things along the way right so let's talk about your current role as uh, you know head of the people function at big basket um, help us understand you know some of the challenges uh, that you have to deal with and you know how you go about solving them at scale oh frankly i have a very good team so i uh, i'm not solving many problems or many challenges so it might seem a bit of a surprise that such a large company as big basket likely to go ipo in less than 2 years 
and I am the head of HR saying that I am not very busy. And that's the truth. And that's because uh, that's the reason why I have a lot of time to do other things. I've been writing books. I'm, I'm associated with... Yeah, I have a very good team. The team is so good, you know, and I have helped to build the team in the beginning. So worked very hard in building the team. And not everybody that you hire is going to be perfect or is going to scale or is going to be the right person. Mm. So you have to take those calls. I had to let go of a few people who didn't have the right attitude or the right competence. But then finally, you're left with a bunch of people who are really awesome. So uh, what I did after that was uh, help them deal with problems the way I would deal with the problem make them ask all the right kind of questions that I would have asked with. I allowed them to make mistakes. So for example, sometimes when they made a mistake, somebody in my, my colleague in the management council might wonder why I would not want to step in and fix it. So if it was very critical, I stepped in and fixed. If it was not critical, I, I allowed it to break and said, you know what, if you, people don't make mistakes, they'll never learn. Mm -hmm. Now they have made many mistakes. They have learned their job. They do their job flawlessly and I've taught them to do my job and they do my job as well. They talk to the founders, they get things done, they get decisions implemented. Only if there is an exception or if there is a really difficult problem, very, very wicked problem that they need you know, think, uh, help in thinking through, they come to me. But otherwise, I am um, not dealing with any. And we have a very decentralized structure where we have a set of corporate functions and all the corporate functions, most of them accepting technology and product are replicated in the regions. So we have, you know, Maharashtra team, we have an NCR team, we have, uh, you know, Pune, Mumbai separate, we have Hyderabad team. Each of these teams is run like a company. The region business head is pretty much the CEO. There's an HR head in the region. There is, uh, you know, a training head. There is a supply chain head. There is an operations head. There is a buying and merchandising head, the warehousing head. So run like a company. The HR head reports to the VPHR in corporate. The VPHR reports to me. So all the region HR heads report to the VPHR. All the training heads report into the VP training and learning and development. So I, I, I am not really at this point of time extremely busy, I would say. Once in a while, there are some strategic issues that I need to deal with, but they are few and far between. So we are an autopilot company. Is The leadership teams are extremely strong and... Uh, I don't have to get into anything on a tactical basis. Amazing. That's, uh, you know, the founders listening to this are kind of salivating. Uh, that's the place <laughs> that everyone would like to be. Mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, uh, sir, let's do a quick, uh, you know, rapid fire round. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. have a bunch of questions, uh, just short answers uh, uh, to the okay. following. Uh, your favorite people problem to solve? Favorite people problem is uh, hiring the right kind of a person for a leadership role. Okay. Interesting. Uh, who is easier to manage, engineers or MBAs? Engineers. <laughs> okay. Your engineering bias is coming to the fore. <laughs> uh, the one thing that you miss from your uh, Tata Steel days? Working with, uh, uh, you know, on the field. Right. Uh, solving... Uh, Problems in the brick and mortar context. Right. Yeah. Uh, one thing engineering has taught you? Structured thinking. One thing literature has taught you? To be romantic. <laughs> one very underrated uh, skill, according to you? Listening. Yeah, I agree. Uh, what is the one thing that you look for in interviews? Honesty. And authenticity. Right. Uh, 
the best quarantine hack that you have discovered over the last uh, two months of staying at home and working? Um, any particular hack? Um, I can't think of a hack, but I have become more creative uh, in a, in this quarantine period. Mm-hmm. I have been writing extensively. I have been speaking to people like you extensively. So I think uh, I am working on Saturdays and Sundays. So for me, it's not, uh, you know, there's no weekend. Right. So I'm doing oh. a lot of fun things. That's amazing. So on that related note, right? So how do you plan your day? I mean, do you plan it in terms of work blocks and writing blocks and so on and so forth? Not really. I don't plan it in terms of any blocks. So typically what I do is I am in the, you know, my home office by nine o'clock in the morning in front of my laptop. And uh, if there are meetings and I mean, conference calls or any of these calls, I attend to those calls. But otherwise, uh, my free time, I'm doing whatever I think uh, is I, I, I need to do. It could be writing, it could be about thinking of a problem. But mostly I am in my home office by nine o'clock and I don't unnecessarily step out a lot. It is almost like being in the office. So till about six o'clock, I'm there, excepting for the lunch break or otherwise small breaks, I'm there. Right. So you leave it to the moment, basically. Yeah, I leave it. To, I've always left it to the moment. Yes. Spoken like a true romantic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what book you're reading right now, and you know any books that you would recommend highly? I am not reading a book at this point of time. I am writing the two books at this point right. of time. Right. One is uh, a book called "Sailing in a Storm: Making a Crisis Work for You." That's the one I'm working on. I'm also working on the, the untold stories of diversity and inclusion. So along with the co-author, both of them have co-authors. So working on two books, I am not reading as such. I, a recent book I read was uh, Loom Shots by Sefi Bakel was a book I yeah. just read recently. Okay. Okay. So uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I mean, truly a lot of insights to you know glean from this. And I know f- for myself, I mean, I will be listening to this over and over again, uh, you know, get mm-hmm. some of the context of whatever you've said. Uh, uh, to kind of end this uh, episode, I'd love for you to, you know, talk about uh, the book that you have coming up, uh, you know, and any words of advice uh, for people who are uh, executing at startups at this point of time, which is, you know, not the most ideal uh, circumstance, I would say, right? Uh, so, yeah, over to you. Okay. So Pony to Unicorn is about uh, scaling a startup sustainably. So I think uh, here in this book, we've identified the different components of scaling. We've developed a framework for scaling Mm -hmm. and we've talked about the different aspects. And this book is full of uh, real life stories. We've talked of uh, real startups uh, in India, real startups outside India, stories about culture, stories about, you know, the human capital side stories about uh, you know pivots that successful companies made inflection points that some companies had to deal with you know companies that were built for you know to last and some companies were built to sell you know what is the difference um, is it important at all so we've talked about um, all of these components valuations how you know real are valuations and uh, what are the implications of valuations how should you look at valuations then the other thing is about you know we've been hearing about uh, you know, go big or go home is a philosophy that was there in the you know dot com era, and right. some founders brought it to India as well. So we've written a chapter set: uh, go home cannot be alternative, an alternative to go big. So uh, 
you've said that as well. And we've talked about stories and why it makes sense. So I think that's, um, I, my belief is that, and I'm not trying to brag or anything, I genuinely believe that um, this is one of the most comprehensive books on how to scale a startup sustainably. Fantastic. And I think uh, Indian founders will find a lot of examples uh, relatable and will be able to, uh, you know, find, uh, derive a lot of value out of this. Yeah. And the next book is, you know, Sailing in a Storm and Making a Crisis Work for You was triggered uh, really because of the current crisis that we are all going through. And, you know, in every single crisis, we found that uh, some individuals were able to actually make the crisis work for them rather than against them. And there are several such stories from different contexts. And, you know, so what we did was we said that let's take the you know, COVID thing only as a background. We've not talked of anything about this particular crisis. We've used this to talk about different types of crisis. For example, loss of a loved one, a child could be a crisis that an individual is dealing with parents are dealing with, which could be far, far, far worse than, you know, a crisis like the COVID. And for example, you know, Johnson & Johnson faced the biggest crisis in its lifetime when, you know, its capsules, you know, Tylenol capsules were laced with, uh, you know, cyanide by a criminal and placed back on the shelves of the stores. So seven people died. So it lost its reputation. It lost $100 million in recalls. But the way it handled the crisis was so amazing that customers began to respect and love you know, Johnson & Johnson even more than before. On the same hand, there was another company called Perrier, a French company which sold bottled water. And it was faced with a similar you know, situation where benzene traces were found in the water bottles. It handled it very badly. Mm. So there's a lot of examples. Then we also talked of, you know, how do you actually prevent a crisis? Certain leadership styles actually can prevent a crisis and nip it in the bud, whereas some other leadership styles actually create crisis. So how do you, what are, what are those leadership styles? So we've gone back to history. Right. We talked of Ahilya Bai Holkar, the, lady, uh, the gentle queen of Indore, her leadership style and how, you know, she created a peaceful regime. Mm. So we've concluded, for example, that it's important for leaders to demonstrate both feminine as well as masculine traits, a combination to be able to prevent and deal with the crisis well. We've talked of Aurangzeb and Akbar. And then we've talked of, you know, every crisis also has in it the seeds of innovation. We've gone back to the 1973 oil crisis and talked of several examples of how companies innovated, how fuel efficient cars, you know, began getting designed and how Japan became the, you know, car manufacturer, biggest car manufacturer exporter in the world. So then we talked of multiple, we talked of several personal examples as well, where, you know, uh, we dealt with some crisis, we encountered crisis situations and, uh, you know, we're able to deal. So we've got several titles, um, being at a historic time is one of the chapters then uh, several chapters which are you know relevant to that uh, so we talked to the 2008 crisis in the asian currency crisis we've talked of situations that uh, companies that we work for encountered companies that we have not worked for encounter encountered i think just the the rich historical uh, perspective is going to help yeah. uh, all of us right because uh, yeah, yeah. Feel, you know i've i've been lucky that i experienced the the last uh, global crisis which was the 2008 yeah, yeah. uh, 2009 global housing crisis yes. happened uh, so you were able to kind of see some things in uh, uh, retrospect and say hey you know what i saw yeah. that at that time and you know this kind of happened right, right. what changes Correct. what doesn't and uh, yeah, also, yeah. even the the earlier book that you spoke about, uh, yeah. right? Uh, I think it's important for founders to be able to read all of these uh, uh, things, uh, just to have that historical perspective on you know how companies yeah. get built, how wealth is created, and so yeah, on. Yeah. So, yeah. 
fantastic i'll be grabbing a copy of both these books soon as they're out thank you roshan thank you thank you so much uh, uh, for spending your time with us uh, and for all of these fascinating insights thank you sir thank you roshan it was a pleasure being on your show thanks a lot yes thanks for tuning in to this episode of the startup operator we'll interview operators at fast growing startups and curate insights that can help you do better this podcast is available on all popular platforms if you like our content don't forget to subscribe and share thank you until next time put your head down and execute